1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas after then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Woo, Debs, yay! <laughs> so who is this man who never wrote a book, but about whom, more, about whom more books have ever been written than anyone who has ever lived? Who is this man who is the furthest thing from royalty yet to more knees throughout the history of the world have ever bowed? Who is this man who never had a degree, but whose teaching have been the subject of more study and introspection than any other scholar? Who is this man who never once posed for a photograph, but whose image has been used for more art than anyone else in history? Who is this man who lived a short life upon whom we measure history and orient our calendars? Who is this Jesus? Is he the greatest man who ever lived? Was he more than a man? Was he the greatest con man among us? Who is this Jesus? And what does he have to do with your life today? Or this story that we are in, the story of Scripture orientates itself around the person of Jesus, the one to whom we have been singing this morning. This story does not only give answers to the biggest questions of life, but it also poses many more questions to you as you read it. I think the most important one, and it culminates uh, in this, is if Jesus is who he said he is, if Jesus is who the writers claim him to be, well, then how do you respond? We're going to hold that thought and come back to it uh, in a bit. Uh, so on the series so far, uh, we've been on this journey of uh, putting these building blocks in place to track the narrative arc, basically mean like the whole story of Scripture. We've been like dipping in in various points. Uh, and so um, in about 20 seconds, I'm going to summarize the last five weeks. Is that all right? And in doing so, the whole of the Old Testament. Here we go. Uh, in Genesis, um, we saw that humans are made in the image of God, given intrinsic value and worth uh, and placed with in the created order. Uh, through Abraham, we became a family that was blessed to be a blessing. In Moses, that family became a tribe of nations freed from slavery and moving towards a promised land. And then last week, we saw how this new nation of Israel wanted a king. And although David had his good moments, although he was a man after God's own heart, he and all the others fell short. And so uh, through all of these triumphs, 
and failures, these ups and downs through slavery and freedom and then back into slavery again. The story of humanity's attempt to get back into the garden ultimately fails. So uh, as uh, the Old Testament draws to a close and with many prophet figures pointing out this is where it went wrong, this is why it went wrong, but also pointing forward with a glimmer of hope for what is to come. We are left at the end of that part of our story wondering, like, what is the remedy for the human condition? More than uh, that, how are we going to possibly tie together all of these loose threads of this story that is so far 600,000 words long? That's a pretty big essay. Uh, And so there's quite a lot of themes covered so far. How are we going to possibly bring all of this to its conclusion? And then we turn the page. We enter the New Testament. And the first line, the very first line we read is this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Um, uh, Hannah and I were uh, quite late to the Marvel series films. Um, uh, a few years ago, we had uh, a rare night out when we went to the cinema, and um, we looked at what was on, and we decided, you know what? Like people have sort of people are kind of keen on the Marvel series movies. Let's go for one of those. Uh, and so what we went uh, we went to go and watch. Um, it was called Avengers Endgame. Um, having never watched any other Marvel films. Uh, before, and we sat through uh, a two and a half hours of, well, I sat through two hours and treated myself to a half an hour nap in one of the showcase recliners, most expensive and most enjoyable nap of my life. And uh, what we sat through was we realized that watching the movie is like, turns out context really is key, um, uh, because that movie is the culmination of all of these different stories. Not only is it the third part of a trilogy, that was news to us, um, uh, but it's also like the bringing together of all of these other figures throughout the Marvel Universe, like Spider-Man and Iron Man and Ant-Man and something else man and Black Panther, and all of these people kind of coming together in this one story. It's like the, all of their stories colliding together in this one climactic moment to tell ultimately this one story of good triumphing over evil. And here in Matthew 1 verse 1, we have this and so, so much more going on. You see, Matthew, the writer of Matthew, what he's doing and making the connection to both David and Abraham, uh, and the other Gospels do it in similar ways. He's saying, like, this is the coming together of all that has gone before, and it is also the preparation of everything else that is to come. This is the one for whom all of the prophecies were ever said and written. This long-awaited Messiah, King, this is, the, this is the direction that the journey has been taking so far. This is the climactic moment of the story, and not just of the story. This is the moment that all of human history has been waiting for, and the main character is Jesus. This Jesus who is love personified, 
In the writer, uh, in, in John's gospel, it says the word made flesh. It's basically like God becoming flesh, living, dwelling amongst us. This love personified person who sits with the outcast and the marginalized and gives people dignity. And then in the next day, goes into the temple courts and speaks to the dignitaries of the day and wows them uh, with his profound teaching. No one had ever heard anything like this before. This Jesus who gathers a, a ragtag, bunch of disciples from all the corners of society. He gathers them together and he so clearly communicates their worth and potential that they are inspired to see it in themselves. And then they go and change the world forever. This Jesus who can speak to the wind and the waves and they obey his commands, who speaks into people's lives and sight is recovered and walking and healing happens and is restored. This Jesus who calls his followers to love their enemies, to forgive because they have been forgiven, to show mercy just as they have been shown mercy. This Jesus who still today billions of hearts turn to in worship as we have just done. This Jesus who is alive and reigns right now in this very room, who sees you, who sees you with all of your past failure and all of your potential in your future. And he looks into your eyes with unwavering affection and says, I am for you. I see you. I love you. You are my beloved. Jesus, the Messiah, the wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace, the Son of God, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. Can I get like a cheeky amen? Yeah, it was cheeky. <laughs> this main character, Jesus, Love personified, the word made flesh, has come to fulfill the story and bring it to its completion. So today, let me share with you two bits of good news before we move on. One, we will never stop talking about Jesus. That is the reason that we are here. Our vision here is to be a church following the way of Jesus, playing our part in the transformation, renewal of our city. Basically, like as we are transformed by Jesus, he changes and renews us inside and out, and then we are called to go and share the same with others. He is the reason for all we do. He is the reason that we gather here on Sundays. We gather here on Sundays to worship and glorify God. That's the reason that we are called to be church together. Not, it's not like an individualistic pursuit of like, oh, I'll just sort of sort myself out and tick spirituality down and live my life. This is the coming together of the family to glorify and worship Jesus. It's the reason that we gather around tables to grow together in intimacy with him. It's the reason that we gather at Alpha. It's to explore and experience the truth of who he is. And it's the reason that we do things like the meeting place to, to share and to show the love love of Jesus. You see, without Jesus, none of this matters. Without Jesus, there is no point us being here. Like, yeah, it's like nice to have a sing song and it's kind of nice to connect with people, but like our purpose, our mission, our power, the presence of God, none of this would matter without Jesus, for he is the authority under which we sit. His word 
His word made flesh. The full story of scripture is the true word which we live out our lives from. It shapes our decisions. It shapes our actions and our thoughts. It shapes the way that we treat one another and treat our neighbors. It shapes the way that we are growing into people of love to share that love with the world around us. That's the first bit of good news. Secondly, because we will never stop talking about Jesus and because there are far too many things for me to cover today, and I'm not going to try. Is that right? Um, at the end of John's Gospel, it says like, there are too many things to say about Jesus that not even all the books in the whole world could ever possibly capture the fullness of who he is. And so I am not going to try and do that. So instead, uh, we are going to reflect on this passage that Debs wrote. Uh, that Debs um, didn't write. <laughs> um, uh, she read it. Just to, just to be clear, um, uh, our passage, which was from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. Uh, Paul has said this in verse 2. It says, this is the gospel by which you are saved. And we'll come back to that. Basically, salvation uh, happens in this way. And then in verse 2, he goes on to give what I think is probably like the closest thing of a gospel summary that we get anywhere in the New Testament. And it says this, uh, for what I have received, I pass on to you, I passed on to you as of first importance. Meaning like this is the primary thing. If you don't get anything else that I've said, just listen to this bit in Paul's language. Try and understand and grasp this. Everything else will start to fall into place. And then he says this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. That phrase that Paul uses um, uh, twice, one of the things that, to notice as you're reading uh, the Bible is where there's repetition, it means that they are trying to make a point. Uh, they didn't have grammar in the same way with like exclamation marks or paragraph uh, breaks in the same way that we do in the English language. And so what he's trying to do is saying, according to the scriptures, Christ has died. According to the scriptures, he was buried and then raised on the third day. He's saying, according to this wider story that we live in, the story of scripture, but also the story of humanity, the story of created order. According to that, this was always the plan. We spoke a few weeks ago um, using Pete Hughes's language from his book, All Things New, that the shape of all scripture looks like this. Um, oh, that was the according to scripture bit. Uh, creation, decreation, recreation. And this gospel summary, according to the scriptures uh, from Paul, is saying that this story of creation, decreation, and recreation of God on a mission to make all things new, to live in right relationship with his humanity, all of this, according to the scriptures, is found in Jesus. So basically, uh, the shape of our story is the shape of Jesus' life. We've like been kind of rehearsing this story over and over again. We see it in Genesis 1 and then 3 and then up to 11. But then we see it in the lives of all the prophets and the making of the kings. It's all over the place. This story is the shape of Jesus' life. So therefore, our wider story, meaning the Bible, finds its fulfillment in the life 
and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Creation, decreation, recreation becomes the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so for today, we're just going to pause on those three uh, and dig a little deeper uh, and then uh, finish. So uh, firstly, in Jesus's life. Uh, There are um, a few uh, passages that we could look at at this point, but um, we're going to just ponder Philippians verses, uh, Philippians chapter two, verse six and seven. And um, uh, this is, I'd encourage you to go away and read it, read the full uh, chapter. This is actually a hymn. It's like a song uh, that the early church uh, would have like recited and, uh, and put a melody to. And as they gathered, it reminded them of who this Jesus was, the one for whom they gathered. Uh, and Philippians 2, 6 and 7 uh, reads this. Uh, Jesus, that's what they're talking about, who uh, in being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. I don't know if you can hear um, some of the echoes of our Eden story in that passage. It's like the use of the word likeness is on purpose there. If you cast your mind back a few weeks that we were made in the image and likeness of God, our purpose was to bear God's image and likeness to the world, to receive it as sons and daughters and and then give it away uh, to the world. And so there's that imagery, but there's also this more subtle imagery uh, um, uh, harking back to the garden where Adam and Eve took of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, basically to gain their own advantage. That's what it says in verse six. It says they took of the fruit to gain their own advantage so that they could become kings in their own kingdom. It's like this echo of this imagery that we've had all throughout the pattern of scripture. But then it continues. It says, rather... So basically, this is Jesus saying, uh, I've come to reverse and reorient uh, this pattern back into its rightful place. It says, rather than fall into the same destructive pattern of making everything about us, taking things for our own advantage, rather than fall into that, instead, he doesn't do that. And he reverses the pattern by humbling himself, taking on the nature of a servant, What he's doing, he's saying, I'm putting God back into the centre of the story. I'm not making it about me. I'm not making it about my desires and wants. I'm putting God back into his rightful place in the centre of the story. That's why we hear Jesus say things throughout his life like, I only do what I see my father doing. I'm putting God in the center. He uh, is uh, the primary person in my life. It's why we um, have things like, not by my will, uh, but by yours, may this be done. God in the center of the story. And the result is this new way of life that Jesus shows us. It's this radical new way of life for a king, uh, for God made flesh, which is self-sacrificing love a life of generosity and humility, a life of caring for others, and a life of power and passion and purpose 
fueled by his intimacy and connection with the Father. This is the reversal, the reclaiming of that garden story, saying this is what humanity was always created for, being people rooted in the love of God and giving away and expressing that love to others. So how do we access that life? Well, the surprising twist and turn that the New Testament takes is that we access that life initially through Jesus's death. Um, you may have seen this simple illustration before, and I'm going um, uh, to do it for you. But um, I encourage you, like, kind of try and make a mental picture of this or even take a note of it. Um, this is a super helpful, really simple illustration. If anyone asks you, why did Jesus die? Like, what's all that about? Like, I get the loving thing. I get that he was like a groovy, vibey, kind of hippie, like fun-loving guy. Uh, but like, why did he die? Like, what was the purpose of that? And you can say, well, um, in answer, to answer that, have you got a piece of pen and a piece of paper and a pen? Uh, so here's the simple illustration. That God created the world and he called it Good. And then he created humanity. And its chief purpose uh, of humanity was to be in loving, perfect relationship with God. This is the life and the identity that we were always created for. However, uh, because humanity decided to go their own way and to become the main character of their own stories, what happened is there was this separation uh, it causes this gap, and we call that gap uh, sin. It's not just the obviously bad things uh, that uh, people do in the world, but it's the choice of the will to orient, orient our lives uh, around ourselves. Ultimately, sin is anything that displaces God's good will, God's good purposes from our lives, which we all do. Every one of us in this room uh, does that. And so what happens is that we are left with this gap. Like God and his creation wants relationship, but it can't happen because there is this dividing wall. And so lots of the Old Testament and really much of today and kind of the efforts that we go through is about trying to like bridge that uh, gap, trying to find peace and fulfillment and a, fl a flourishing of life. And it, it might be that if we just try really hard like if we just try really hard to be the best possible person that we could be, like really like love our neighbour really well and kind of um, pay our taxes when they're due and all those kind of good things, uh, maybe that would be enough to get us back, but it, it won't, it always fails. Maybe if, maybe if we like start some new habits, maybe if like we really take our New Year's resolutions seriously and like we absolutely nail it this time, maybe we could get back, but it doesn't deal with it. And so... God in his grace and his love and his mercy, he says, I will bridge that gap. You can't do it. Human effort is never going to get there. Human works is never going to be enough. And so I myself will bridge that gap by sending my son Jesus to take on your sin, to take on your sin upon himself in this once and for all act, for all time, not just one moment, but for all time. He puts death to death and he becomes the bridge back into relationship with God. Now we can freely walk back into the presence of God. 
that which has been disconnected has now been redeemed. And that's like good news, right? Can we get another cheeky amen there? Amen, yes, I agree. Uh, which is all that word means. Um, uh, this is good news. Uh, and like this is a simple, like that's a simple uh, illustration. Like that you could draw that on a piece of paper and uh, try and capture uh, this is what Jesus is about and this is really what it means for him to die. And it's helpful, but it's too simple. It's not quite the full picture. It's not actually really what the full gospel is. And so although I'm not knocking this and I think that it's good, it's just so much better than that. It's so much better than just simply, oh, we can now walk across this bridge. As good news as that is, because God doesn't stay on that cross. God doesn't stay dead just simply being a bridge. But Jesus is raised to life. He ushers in a new creation, a new kind of humanity. And when we are in the shops at the moment with our three and a half and five and a half uh, year old boys, um, we are, which is news to us, we are exclusively on the lookout for things that they didn't realize that they desperately needed before they walked into the shop. And now everything in their world and life is only exclusively about this one toy. Like, as if, like, if you don't get this for me, just like, what's the point? Like, <laughs> Like, why, why would I possibly be able to live beyond this point without that uh, piece of plastic in that other bit of plastic on the front of that other bit of plastic? We have this phrase that um, we try and navigate our way through shops at the moment, um, rather than just constantly saying, no, uh, we can't buy that piece of plastic wrapped in plastic. Um, uh, what we do now is we say, wow, that looks great. Well done, son, you're amazing. Um, uh, wow, that looks great. Um, do you want to add that to your wish list? Um, uh, we now have an extremely long uh, wish list. <laughs> That is far too long uh, for us to account for, um, one of which is a 250-pound curling iron, um, which just they like the look of the box. Um, and so that now lives on their wish list. See, what the death and resurrection together means is that uh, we get this gift of new life. We get this gift of actually eternal life, life forever, life beyond death with God. And it's like, it's not just that the cross has happened and now we can add to our wish list this sort of new life when we get to the end. Once we've like lived it all out, we'll just chuck that on the wish list. No, the resurrection of Jesus means that all of the Christmases and all of the birthdays and all of the celebrations is here now. This gift of life, this gift of new creation is now available to you. It's life to the full for you and for me. You see, the cross has made a way for us to have a relationship with God. But as Jesus rises from death, something else now happens. The start of this new creation, it's the pinnacle moment of the restoration of all things. It is the pinnacle moment to say this project that we are on, this plan that we have to get back to the garden is made and fulfilled in Jesus. All things can now be made new as they flow from the resurrection of Jesus. 
You see, because Jesus rose, there is now hope beyond the grave. You and I can have hope beyond death, life after death. Because Jesus rose from the grave, there is now a living and active power and presence that is at work in the world today that is advancing his kingdom come. The power of the Spirit as we step into it, transform step by step, creating and calling us into the people that we were always meant to be as children of God, living every moment with with God's sustaining life breathed within us. And more importantly, and I think most importantly, what the resurrection means is this is not just like this personal thing between you and God. This is not just this like transaction that you do, which like I can chuck that on the wish list, tick, I get to go to this imaginary place in the skies. What it means is that now that the life of God is within you, as he pours his life in you, you get to play your part in the renewal of the city and beyond. You get to play your part in bringing his life and his presence into the world around you. Theologian Tom Wright says it like this, much better than me. The message of the resurrection is that this world matters that the injustices and the pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing and justice and love have won. You see, if Easter, which is another way of saying the resurrection, means Jesus Christ is, the only, is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it is only about me and finding a new dimension to my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead like physically risen from the dead, then Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. News which warms our heart precisely because it isn't just about warming your heart, but the hearts of every single life you care about, every life on your street, every life in your office. So the shape of our story is the shape of Jesus's life and is also the shape of our salvation. You see, we were created for life with God, given this God-given identity as his children. Uh, But then uh, sin or decreation moves us away from God at the centre and the result is death. As Ephesians puts it, it says this, we were dead in our transgressions. We were dead in our sins. It's not like we were like kind of struggling to swim on the surface and Jesus in his grace chucks us a ring and pulls us to safety. What sin is, is that you were lying drowned, dead at the bottom of the ocean. And Jesus, in his grace and his mercy, swims down, drags you back up, and breathes new life into you. This is the journey that every Christian must take. This is the journey that you must take to enter into the story that you were created for, to enter into life with Jesus. It is as he surrenders his life on the cross, you are invited to do the same to reorient your life back to where God is at the centre, surrendering your desires and your wills to him. What that simply means is saying like, God, you know better than me. 
God, you have a better plan for my life than I could ever make. I am not in control. You are in control. Let your ways be the way that I live. For the way to life is through death and out the other side. So now that through the resurrection of Jesus, the recreation of, and renewal of all things is at hand. Creation, new creation starts in you. You are called to partner in his kingdom, to bring about his kingdom advances. One of the phrases that's used in the New Testament is that you are like an ambassador for this new kingdom, meaning that you represent this kingdom and bring it into the world, saying like there is life and freedom for you. The shape of our story is the shape of Jesus's life, and it's the shape of our salvation. So let me finish with an observation of that last word. Uh, We sometimes use this phrase, and I I think we may have even sang it this morning, that salvation is in the name of Jesus. That in the name of Jesus, there is power to save. I'm sure, I'm hopefully kind of jogging your memory of some worship songs that you are familiar with. There is power in the name of Jesus, power to save and heal. And why that is significant for us today is this, that the name of Jesus in Aramaic, which was the language that Jesus spoke at the time, is Yeshua. And Yeshua means Yahweh saves. That root word of Yeshua is um, from a different Hebrew word uh, that is Yasha, uh, which means salvation. Literally translated, it's translated as Yahweh saves, but literally translated, that term means to be led into a wide open space. The name of Jesus means that God will lead you into a wide open space. A wide open space, this phrase echoes uh, the Eden story and even the story of the promised land that we have been journeying through. But Jesus actually leads people into that wide open space in him, in his life, in his death, and in his Resurrection. Those who have been hemmed in by sin, those who have been trampled by oppression, those who have been outcast and pushed to the margins of society, Jesus says, come. There is a wide open space for anyone and everyone who is able to come. That's you and me and the whole world. And so now, not just a single nation, not just the people of Israel, but all people can stumble in and discover this expansive freedom in Jesus. This expansive freedom in Jesus where grace and love and forgiveness and peace run free. So, if Jesus is who he claimed he was, if Jesus still is who he claims he is, If Jesus is the fulfillment of this story and what the writers of the New Testament all point towards and say, this is the main character, love personified. If all of that is true, how do you respond? Today, how do you respond? For there is a wide open space of freedom, of life, of redemption and restoration 
that is available for you today. There is no better time to respond than now.